Section 29, Introduction. Since all of the members of the church were looking forward to the second general conference to be held in Fayette toward the end of September, many of the most active members of the church were beginning to assemble there. They were particularly delighted when Joseph and Emma arrived with all their belongings from Harmony, Pennsylvania, and it was assumed they would make their home with the Whitmers or somewhere nearby. Once Joseph Smith had received the revelation designed to settle the false revelation received by Hiram Page, the members of the priesthood were anxious to have Joseph request the Lord for further light and knowledge. Six elders were with Joseph when this remarkable communication from the Lord was received. The surprising thing about this revelation which the Lord gave to Joseph Smith was its mammoth proportions. Up to this time, the Book of Mormon and communications from the Lord were precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. But section 29 turned out to be a whole complex layer upon layer of doctrine and apocalyptic revelation. Now the text of section 29. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, the Great I Am, whose arm of mercy hath atoned for your sins. After identifying the author of this revelation, the Savior describes his, quote, arm of mercy, unquote. Notice that the Lord never says his suffering had, quote, paid for their sins, unquote, but his suffering had created such a reservoir of mercy that this becomes the resource on which he depends to intercede for all mankind who come unto him. This is in complete harmony with Alma chapter 34, verse 15, and Alma 42, verse 15. Who will gather his people, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, even as many as will hearken to my voice, and humble themselves before me, and call upon me in mighty prayer. This will be one of the many references to a great gathering which the Lord is contemplating before the second coming. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that at this time your sins are forgiven you. Therefore ye receive these things, but remember to sin no more, lest peril shall come upon you. The Lord does not itemize the sins for which these six elders are being forgiven, but some of them had believed in the false revelations of Hiram Page, and no doubt there were other frailties which the Lord now says he will forgive. Verily I say unto you, that ye are chosen out of the world to declare my gospel with a sound of rejoicing, as with the voice of a trump. Although the identity of these six elders is not given in the church history, this verse clearly indicates that they will be among God's leaders in spreading the gospel. The Lord says he wants the message to go forth in a spirit of rejoicing, and the elders should proclaim the great new message like the sound of a trump. Lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst and am your advocate with the Father, and it is his good will to give you the kingdom. The Lord wants these elders to realize what a marvelous thing is happening. They are receiving revelations from the Savior himself. This means he is with them and among them. He is not only their advocate with the Father, but it is the will of the Father to make them custodians of the whole restored kingdom. And as it is written, Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, 
being united in prayer according to my command, ye shall receive. Therefore the Father will be very sensitive to their needs, and whatever they ask in righteousness shall be given unto them. And ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. For mine elect hear my voice, and harden not their hearts. Wherefore the decree hath gone forth from the Father, that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land, to prepare their hearts, and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. Now the Lord launches forth into new territory. He says there is going to be a great gathering in this land, which suggests that he is referring to America. Furthermore, this gathering is for the safety and survival of the righteous, so they will not be annihilated when God's judgments of tribulation and desolation are poured out upon the wicked. For the hour is nigh, and the day soon at hand, when the earth is ripe, and all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and I will burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that wickedness shall not be upon the earth. For the hour is nigh, and that which was spoken by mine apostles must be fulfilled. For as they spoke, so shall it come to pass. For I will reveal myself from heaven with power and great glory, with all the hosts thereof, and dwell in righteousness with men on earth a thousand years, and the wicked shall not stand. In these verses, the eye of the Lord is focused on the great cleansing of the earth just before the second coming. In other words, he is talking about the great conflagration of judgment, which will reap down the wicked just before the ushering in of the millennium. And again, verily, verily, I say unto you, and it hath gone forth in a firm decree by the will of the Father, that mine apostles, the twelve which were with me in my ministry at Jerusalem, shall stand at my right hand at the day of my coming in a pillar of fire, being clothed with robes of righteousness, with crowns upon their heads, in glory even as I am, to judge the whole house of Israel, even as many as have loved me and kept my commandments, and none else. It was sent forth as a firm decree when Jesus was with the twelve in the meridian of time that the apostles would come with Jesus at the second coming and be responsible for judging the entire house of Israel. For a trump shall sound both long and loud, even as upon Mount Sinai, and all the earth shall quake, and they shall come forth, yea, even the dead which died in me to receive a crown of righteousness, and to be clothed upon, even as I am, to be with me, that we may be one. In order for this great judgment to take place, the Father's children must be raised from the dead and stand before their Creator. The first to come forth will be the righteous saints. They will come forth with celestial bodies, like that of the Savior himself. But suddenly the Savior stops as he recalls the terrible suffering which will precede this hour of judgment. He says, But behold, I say unto you, that before this great day shall come, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall be turned into blood, and the stars shall fall from heaven, 
and there shall be greater signs in heaven above and in the earth beneath, and there shall be weeping and wailing among the hosts of men, and there shall be a great hailstorm sent forth to destroy the crops of the earth. But none of this terrible destruction will come upon the children of men until after the missionaries have gone through and pleaded with them to repent. The massive judgmental destruction will not come until after they have heard the gospel and spitefully rejected it in a spirit of arrogant defiance. The Lord says, And it shall come to pass, because of the wickedness of the world, that I will take vengeance upon the wicked, for they will not repent. For the cup of mine indignation is full. For behold, my blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not. Now the Lord describes a terrible plague which will put millions of wicked Gentiles on their knees pleading for mercy. Wherefore, I, the Lord God, will send forth flies upon the face of the earth, which shall take hold of the inhabitants thereof and shall eat their flesh, and shall cause maggots to come in upon them. And their tongues shall be stayed, that they shall not utter against me, and their flesh shall fall from off their bones, and their eyes from their sockets. And it shall come to pass that the beasts of the forest and the fowls of the air shall devour them up. This plague is one of the mysteries in the scriptures. When I asked Elder John A. Witzel of the Council of the Twelve what the Lord meant by mysteries in the scriptures, he said it was a revelation which we find impossible to understand until we have found the other scriptures that relate to it. I suggested that this plague ties in with Third Nephi chapter 24. There you will find the Savior telling the Nephites about the great cleansing of America in modern times. The Lord described two scenarios. One is the massive destruction of the wicked Gentiles by the seed of Jacob or the children of Lehi. But the Lord makes it clear that this doesn't have to happen. Beginning in 3 Nephi 24 and verse 22, the Lord says that if the wicked Gentiles repent, they will be numbered among the children of Israel, receive a permanent inheritance in America, and help build a new Jerusalem. But the big question remains, what would shock the wicked Gentiles into repenting? These three verses we have just read would do it. This type of calamity without any known remedy would put millions of wicked Gentiles on their knees. Then the Lord could save the remnant just as he did after the terrible destruction of the wicked Nephites and Lamanites at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Within a few years, the entire population had been converted. The shock treatment which was received by the Lamanites and Nephites was so severe that within a few years, the entire population had been converted to the church. Then they set up a Zion society that lasted nearly 300 years. I suggest that the three verses you have just read could have the same kind of impact on the Gentiles in modern times. And the great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall be cast down by devouring fire, according as it is spoken by the mouth of Ezekiel the prophet, who spoke of these things, which have not come to pass, 
but surely must, as I live, for abominations shall not reign. Ezekiel chapter 28 describes the day when God's chosen people will be gathered from all over the earth and have a sanctuary of safety and prosperity in the land of their original inheritance. Now the Lord wants to finish his prophetic account, which will take place at the end of the millennium. And again, verily, verily, I say unto you, that when the thousand years are ended, and men again begin to deny their God, then will I spare the earth but for a little season. Although it seems virtually unbelievable, there will be a massive apostasy at the end of the millennium, even among those who had enjoyed the company and leadership of the Savior himself. Elsewhere we learn that the apostates will be called Gog and Magog. Satan will organize them for the great last war against the Savior. But after Satan and his hosts are defeated and stripped of their tabernacles, they will be cast back into outer darkness as naked intelligences. Then the earth will be ready for its exaltation. And the end shall come, and the heaven and the earth shall be consumed and pass away, and there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, for all old things shall pass away, and all things shall become new, even the heaven and the earth, and all the fullness thereof, both men and beasts, the fowls of the air and the fishes of the sea, and not one hair, neither moat, shall be lost, for it is the workmanship of mine hand. Having described the glorification of the earth, Jesus wants to do a flashback and describe the final resurrection and the massive judgment that will take place just before the glorification of the earth. He says, But behold, verily I say unto you, before the earth shall pass away, Michael mine archangel shall sound his trump, and then shall all the dead awake, for their graves shall be opened, and they shall come forth, yea, even all. And the righteous shall be gathered on my right hand unto eternal life, and the wicked on my left hand will I be ashamed to own before the Father. Wherefore I will say unto them, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And now behold, I say unto you, Never at any time have I declared from mine own mouth that they should return. For where I am they cannot come, for they have no power. These last three verses are referring to those who have refused the gospel, either in their earth life or in the spirit world or both. This means that they have lost every possibility of permanently returning to the presence of the Father in the celestial kingdom. The Lord stresses that once they have forfeited the celestial kingdom, there is no opportunity in all of the eternities of crossing the gulf back into the glorious presence of the Father. However, the Lord has more to reveal concerning those who do not return to the presence of the Father in the celestial kingdom. There are other kingdoms, and the final destiny of those who are excluded from the presence of the Father will be dramatically described in the 76th section when we come to it. Meanwhile, the Lord wants to describe one of the anomalies of life 
when the first shall be last and the last shall be first, he says. But remember that all my judgments are not given unto men, and as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first in all things whatsoever I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit. Obviously the work of the Lord is in segments and presented in sequential arrangements so that we have a natural understanding of how the Lord operates. Nevertheless, he wants us to realize that his work is in eternal continuity without beginning or end. It is interesting that the Lord says many of the principles set forth in this revelation is in response to the questions being raised by these six elders. The Lord says he is responding to them because they are united and seeking answers. For by the power of my Spirit created I them, yea, all things both spiritual and temporal, first spiritual, secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work, and again first temporal and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work, speaking unto you that you may naturally understand. But unto myself my works have no end, neither beginning. But it is given unto you that ye may understand, because ye have asked it of me and are agreed. Wherefore verily I say unto you, that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal, neither any man, nor the children of men, neither Adam your father, whom I created. We tend to divide our studies into aspects that are either spiritual or temporal, but the Lord says all things to him are spiritual. In fact, he says at no time has the Lord ever given mankind any laws that were strictly temporal. This statement is much more profound than we can at present comprehend. We need to have the Lord reveal deeper insight into its meaning. Behold, I gave unto him that he should be an agent unto himself. And I gave unto him commandment, but no temporal commandment gave I unto him. For my commandments are spiritual. They are not natural, nor temporal, neither carnal nor sensual. Perhaps this verse was intended to help us understand the inherently spiritual aspect of all laws and commandments emanating from God. These last two verses imply that God's commandments, which seem to have a temporal application, practically carry with them an important spiritual implication of which we are not entirely aware. And it came to pass that Adam, being tempted of the devil, for behold, the devil was before Adam, for he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor, which is my power, and also a third part of the hosts of heaven, turned he away from me because of their agency. When Satan presented his plan in the spirit world, he was so animated with his own brilliance that the devil said he wanted the honor and full credit for his ingenious plan. Well, since it was based on compulsion, it was ridiculous. In fact, it would have completely defeated the primary purpose of the second estate, which was to learn the difference between good and evil. In rejecting Satan's ridiculous proposal, the Lord tucked in a scriptural mystery by saying that, quote, my honor is my power, unquote. 
We have already mentioned the definition of a mystery in the scriptures by John A. Witzel, who said it is a revelation which cannot be understood until it is associated with other scriptures which illuminate its meaning. I had always thought that our God received his power from his Father, but Elder Witzel said I was mistaken. His Father gave him the keys or authority to build our present round of creation but he did not give him the power to do it. Our Heavenly Father had to bring in from outer darkness vast quantities of intelligences and primal matter. The intelligences were then combined with the matter and trained to love, obey, and honor our Heavenly Father. This is what gives our Father his power. So he got his authority from above, but his power came from these intelligences that love, obey, and honor him. This is a priesthood principle. All officers in God's kingdom get their power from those over whom they have jurisdiction. This is why the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants 63 and 59, I am from above, but my power is from beneath. In this verse, the Lord also verifies that in the war in heaven, the Father lost one-third of his spirit children over the principle of free agency. This rebellious third preferred a plan of salvation based on coercion rather than free choice. And they were thrust down, and thus came the devil and his angels. And behold, there is a place prepared for them from the beginning. Which place is hell? When the rebellious spirits were cast out from the spirit world, they descended to a lower state of existence in the temporal world. However, it could be technically described as across the veil because both the spirit world and temporal world are on this planet, even though they consist of two different realms. And it must needs be that the devil should tempt the children of men, or they could not be agents unto themselves, for if they never should have bitter, they could not know the sweet. The purpose of the second estate is to help the father's children distinguish the difference between good and evil, and determine to abhor evil forever. Satan therefore serves an unintentional service to the father by testing the mettle of the father's spirit children, so they can better qualify for their eternal existence, those who resist Satan return to the Father. Those who falter and succumb to Satan's snares end up in a state of terrible spiritual suffering where they pay for all of their mistakes to the uttermost farthing and thereby learn their lessons. Jesus describes how agonizing and fierce this suffering can be. That's in Doctrine and Covenants section 19 verses 17 to 18. However, in the end, all of the Father's children are redeemed, either through the atonement or by paying for their own sins. And that's Doctrine and Covenants 76, verses 36 to 38. Notice that except for the sons of perdition, all of the wicked are redeemed in due time after suffering the wrath of God for their sins. And once redeemed, the Father can then use them for his righteous purposes. Wherefore it came to pass that the devil tempted Adam, and he partook of the forbidden fruit, and transgressed the commandment, wherein he became subject to the will of the devil, 
because he yielded unto temptation. Wherefore I, the Lord God, caused that he should be cast out from the garden of Eden from my presence, because of his transgression, wherein he became spiritually dead, which is the first death, even that same death which is the last death, which is spiritual, which shall be pronounced upon the wicked, when I shall say, Depart, ye cursed. These two verses describe the fall of Adam and Eve as God wanted his children to think of it. Later the Lord explained to Adam that he set them up so they would take it upon themselves to bring about the change that would allow them to have children. Once this was explained to them, Mother Eve felt completely vindicated. Her statement is found in Moses 5 and 11. By preventing the fall as it is set forth in these two verses, it prevents mankind from blaming all of the hardships of earth life on God. It helps us to think of it as something we brought on ourselves. Notice that the fall or separation from the Father is equated with the first death. Being born into earth life makes us forget who we were in the spirit world and what we were ordained to accomplish in this life. Because of what the Father calls the death process of forgetting, we are literally all born equal. But behold, I say unto you, that I, the Lord God, gave unto Adam and unto his seed that they should not die as to the temporal death, until I, the Lord God, should send forth angels to declare unto them repentance and redemption through faith on the name of mine only begotten Son. And thus did I, the Lord God, appoint unto man the days of his probation, that by his natural death he might be raised in immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe, and they that believe not unto eternal damnation, for they cannot be redeemed from their spiritual fall, because they repent not, for they love darkness rather than light, and their deeds are evil, and they receive their wages of whom they list to obey. Here is the explanation for the early generations living so long. He wanted them to all hear the gospel before they died. Obviously, if they rejected it, there were serious consequences, just as there are today. But what about little children who die before they've had a chance to hear the gospel? But behold, I say unto you that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world through mine only begotten. Wherefore they cannot sin, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children, until they begin to become accountable before me. For it is given unto them, even as I will, according to mine own pleasure, that great things may be required at the hand of their fathers. And again I say unto you, that whoso, having knowledge, have I not commanded to repent? In contrast to little children, the Lord is very judgmental of those who were given the opportunity to repent, but didn't do so. And he that hath no understanding, it remaineth in me to do according as it is written. And now I declare no more unto you at this time. Amen. As for those who lack the mental capacity to evaluate the gospel, the Lord says, quote, it remaineth in me, unquote, to make an appropriate judgment. 
As we close this revelation, we cannot help but stand all amazed that six brand new members of the church would seek to open up such an encyclopedia of gospel knowledge. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on the Prophet Joseph Smith, look for W. Cleon Skousen's book titled Brother Joseph at skousenlibrary.com.